Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Uh, joining me here at Wilton, we've got uh, Joe, Keith, and uh, first-time visitor, Chris. And coming in on Zoom this morning, we have uh, Matt and Paul and Jeff and Doug. Doug joining us from uh, Oberlin. So, uh, the topic we're going to launch into this morning that I think will keep us occupied for the next uh, several Jukai classes is uh, our initial uh, entry into the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, what uh, many would consider to be kind of a core teaching of the Buddha. Uh, really uh, what kind of sets in many ways uh, all the Buddhist traditions, this unique path that we all follow, it's, it's a common thread, uh, regardless of the tradition, whether it's Zen or Tibetan or Vipassana or Pure Land or Nachiram or any of the other smaller uh, traditions. Uh, they all find a foundation for their practice in the teaching of the, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. And I'll try to, to continue to allude to that as we go forward in this study, uh, drawing parallels in particular to, to how it intersects with, with Zen teachings. Let me make sure. Moving things around here, I lost sight of my coffee. <laughs> I'm starting to panic. <laughs> so, to begin with, uh, I just wanted to, to uh, offer a bit of an, a general introduction to, to the Noble Eightfold Path. And then we, we will uh, move on from there to the first two aspects of the path uh, right view and right intention. And the, the introduction I'm going to be kind of drawing as a basic resource from, uh, from Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, text on the end. This handy little text, which I uh, highly recommend. It's uh, pretty inexpensive. Back when I got it, it was 1095. It might have gone up a little bit from there. And it's uh, obviously a small book, uh, barely over 100 pages. But uh, in that limited amount of space, he really does a nice job, I think, of, uh, of laying out uh, all eight aspects of the Eightfold Path. And as it's important that we recall that this is 
the fourth noble truth. So it's part of the four noble truths. And the noble truths begin with the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering, of dukkha. So just to keep ever present in our minds that what's being laid out here in this Eightfold Path is the path to the alleviation of suffering or dukkha, which will be the Sanskrit term that from here on in, I'll, I'll try to just limit uh, uh, myself to that term because suffering is, is a little uh, uh, bit of an inaccurate, insufficient term uh, to fully describe what's, what's really signified by the, uh, the term dukkha, the sense of, uh, of uh, unsatisfactoriness in our lives that, that uh, serves as the motivating force for, for finding a spiritual path, being drawn to one, investigating, and ultimately uh, uh, perhaps settling on one because it, uh, because we find it to be uh, true to its purpose of alleviating the dissatisfaction in our lives. So to begin with this sense of, of suffering, of dukkha. And the other thing that's, that I think is important to keep in mind here is that this is a spiritual path. We've touched on this a little bit in recent Thursdays as we've begun looking at the ox herding pictures and uh, the fact that if one comes to the path looking for more mundane relief, let's say, just some kind of uh, uh, psychological well-being and physical well-being, uh, that this path is really geared uh, for a much deeper uh, response on our part. Uh, it's not that the Eightfold Path doesn't entail you know, psychological benefits, physical benefits. It does, I think, but certainly has for me and for most practitioners I, I know. Uh, so it's not that it's not without those benefits. But that's not why I continue to practice. And that's true for people that uh, almost without exception that stay with the practice. Uh, you know, they appreciate, like I do, these, these little side benefits that come with it. But it's the deeper sense of dissatisfaction that's why I respond then with a much deeper approach to the practice because it does satisfy that deeper yearning, what really called, called me 
to seek a path and to settle on this particular path, which was the right one for me. Doesn't mean it's necessarily the right one for everybody. And that if somebody investigates it and decides it's not the path for them, we just kind of go, oh, boy, you poor lost soul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, would hope, the only hope would be that they continue to their search to find the one that's right for them. And don't just give up. That would be the only tragedy, not to abandon a particular tradition. And Vicky Bodhi, I think uh, it's it's appropriate. I'm glad Joe talked about uh, his, his uh, adventures traveling to his wedding, because uh, because Bhikkhu Bodhi kind of compares uh, a spiritual path and settling into one to uh, the marriage commitment, because a marriage commitment is this really wholehearted investing our entire being. In. Otherwise, it's like, it would be maybe one is seeking some more mundane, superficial things. Like one wants the companionship or, or we could make a whole list of, of, of things that don't go very deep that could maybe lead one to get married. But, uh, but then, you know, we could clearly see that, well, actually, it's something so much more profound. What a shame to only be viewing it from that more superficial level. Well, the same thing applies to, to this spiritual path. To enter into it kind of as a partner for life, just like a spouse would be that one makes a really deep commitment to. And there's some real durability there. So I think it's a nice parallel. I really, uh, uh, it resonated with me when, uh, when Vicki Bodhi makes that point. And uh, something that we're regularly circling back to, so I'm not going to spend too much time with it here this morning, but the importance of the fact that uh, the Dharma, the teachings, uh, and this is one of the things that kind of sets it apart from many other uh, spiritual traditions, is that it's verifiable through our own experience, going all the way back to the original teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, this was very key that each practitioner needs to investigate this, the Dharma teachings for him or herself and be satisfied with 
their truth. Because this is about a search for truth. And it's not about just accepting it because it was the teaching of the Buddha. Buddha himself was very clear about that. Do not accept it on his authority or anybody else's authority. This needs to be investigated and seen through by each and every one of us. So we come together and study Dharma. And I try to present it in a way that people will be able to relate to in their own lives. Uh, try to uh, offer any clarification to questions that arise. But often, you know, the best response to questions is just to try and, and offer some clarification as opposed to, you know, pulling an answer out. <laughs> This is the answer. And then the Dharma is seen as being just a series of answers. Actually, the more important thing is that it's a series of questions, which point to our deeper engagement with our lives. That we start to question things that leading a more contemplative life tends to, uh, to, to pull up for us. So that's actually a pretty good sign. Having questions, uh, often we, uh, just from our past conditioning, we might tend to think, well, that, that's, that's a sign that I'm not getting it, you know, that I'm a slow student. <laughs> I, sh I shouldn't have any questions. That's not the case at all. This is actually the reverse of that, that having questions is a wonderful thing. That's a real good sign. <laughs> the questions we should all have. And we should really uh, become accustomed to these deep, profound questions. And to see that, that to have a rich life uh, in many respects, is dependent upon our being able to get in touch with those questions rather than just if they do arise, kind of brushing them aside because they're not germane to our normal everyday endeavors in life of getting ahead, accomplishing more. Uh, conventional, mundane goals. And anything that's, that gets in the way of that, we tend to ignore. And I guess the, the last thing uh, pretty much that, that I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at in terms of this general introduction is uh, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's treatment of what, what are termed, especially in the Theravadan tradition, 
defilements. And the principal defilements are known as the three poisons, greed, anger or hatred, and ignorance or delusion. So these are the defilements. These are the, uh, the roots of our uh, mental actions, our thoughts, and, and the actual uh, uh, behaviors that these thoughts lead to. So a great deal of Buddhist practice is to become familiar with our uh, the presence of the three poisons within our lives, the de defilements, the, the root causes of our dissatisfaction, of our dukkha. In order to gain freedom from them, we need to really get to know them very well as they manifest in our life. Because this isn't about repressing them. You know, contemporary psychology certainly uh, understands that that's counterproductive. Just repress things that we don't uh, want to face, that we don't like about ourselves, that causes issues. To re just repress it, uh, just actually is counterproductive because we we're, we can't address it then. We ignore it. One of those root poisons, ignorance. To just ignore it accomplishes nothing. So we need to become very familiar with them. And the Eightfold Path in its entirety is about doing just that. And certainly the sutra uh, that we've been studying that's kind of led us because this forms part of that sutra, being mindful of the uh, Four Noble Truths. It's how the Satipatthana Sutra concludes. So it's implied throughout the Satipatthana in its mind practice of mindfulness of the body and of feelings and of the mind before getting to the mindfulness of, of Dharma itself. It's about getting to know the defilements and what their roots are. That's a huge important part of this path. So to have that understanding and to keep coming back to that as our practice. And another thing relative to the Eightfold Path, and this kind of sets it apart, I think, from the uh, ox herding pictures, 
which is also a path, a journey. Uh, but the Eightfold Path should not be viewed as some kind of step-by-step -step going through these eight things, eight aspects, like right view to right intention, to right uh, thought and right speech and right action and right effort and right concentration and right mindfulness. Rather, the better analogy for them, as opposed to that kind of a, a sequential path, is uh, kind of these, diff these eight different threads that make up a cable. And the cable depends on all eight of them. So that, you know, right view is dependent upon the other seven aspects. And those seven aspects are also dependent upon right view and so on, all the way down the line. So it's really, instead of an eightfold path, we could call it a onefold path, but we're looking at it from these eight different strands, but they, they only gain their significance, their meaning from their relationship together. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's right, and and uh, uh, along with the listing, I'll put them into the three groupings because uh, they begin with wisdom, and wisdom has the first two: right view, right intention. Then we move from there to to virtue, morality. So now we're into right thought, right speech right livelihood. And then, or not right thought, <laughs> right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then uh, we end up with the, uh, the final three, which deal with meditation. So we have wisdom, virtue, meditation, which are seen as kind of the three overall aspects of our practice. And the meditation piece consists of right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. So uh, more important than, than uh, having those, those eight uh, memorized, although that's not a bad thing either, but to have those three makes it a much simpler task for us of wisdom, uh, virtue, and meditation. That's what this path is in its essence. And those all three, just like each of the eight, are, are intertwined and form one cable. So it is with those three. So meditation if that's all we did and it didn't have any relationship to wisdom or to morality, wouldn't be part of a spiritual path. What makes it a spiritual path is the intertwining of all three of those. That's the essential thing.
And then finally, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about uh, the fact that the Eightfold Path can be seen as, uh, as being a practice of the middle way. And the middle way has a couple of different meanings within Buddhism. Uh, the meaning that's being attributed to it, that's being attributed to it here, is is being falling, uh, not falling to either side of just sense indulgence or self denial. That the middle way is caring for the self. So spiritual ascetics see the body, for instance, as being a hindrance. And that's where self-mortification, denying oneself, fasting, not getting, not sleeping, just completely neglecting the body is seen as, as a sign that one is serious about a spiritual path. And that's been common in a lot of traditions, certainly Hinduism, which Buddhism, of course, grew out of. But it's, you know, it has roots in Christianity, too. So to actually care for oneself, mindfulness of the body. Because we need to have a healthy body to do this practice. So that's, as we uh, wrap up this general introduction, that's an important uh, point to, to bear in mind. Is that this is, is definitely not about uh, indulging this, the senses to where we become uh, slaves of our desires. But it's also not about just completely uh, renouncing all of those, because they do have a role to play. There's a reason why we have desires. And we can practice with them without becoming slaves to them. And that's the practice that's being conveyed here. And that's an important thing, like I said, to keep in mind. This, this particular sense of the middle way. So in summation, uh, the Kubodi says the Eightfold Path gives rise to vision, our seeing truth, gives rise to knowledge, and leads to peace to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. This is the, the Eightfold Path. All right. So I'll And before I dive into right view then, uh, let me button and observations.
thoughts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what's the book title of the book you referenced uh, at the beginning? Uh, oh, the yeah, it's it's uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. It's title. And the author. The author is Bikhu Bodhi. Bikhu is spelled B-H-I-K-K-H-U, and Bodhi is B-O-D-H-I. Thank you. Oh. Yeah, um, I think the question, the big question I had, I think you, you touched on it actually, because um, I was going to ask sort of, you know, what is the, what makes a path spiritual? And as opposed to just a regular path, and I think you touched on it with those three larger categories of wisdom, virtue, and, and meditation. And the other question though I had, and maybe give some perspective on this is, I've read or heard another, you know, sort of readings that certain schools of Buddhism focus on different parts of the path or put emphasis on parts of the path. So like in Zen, sort of the mindfulness or concentration become like a bigger focus and other schools, you know, might be more looking at the morality path or the wisdom path. Can you give some perspective on, is that the right way to kind of, you know, do certain schools kind of emphasize, particularly I'm thinking like Zen, you know, are we emphasizing that part of the path a little bit more than some of the others? I know they're all supposed to kind of work together and be holistic, but um, just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's, that's a, a, a wonderful question, especially for Zen, because Zen uh, is a Chinese term for meditation. So we're the meditation Buddhists. So the takeaway would be that, uh, well, that's, that's the, uh, the practice that we're really focused on. And that's where I think it was helpful that Dogen made the comment of, of uh, separating Zaza from just meditation practice. Zazen as, as it was taught and understood by Dogen, is the whole path. It's all of it. It's not limited, as he says in Fukan Zizani, how can it be limited to just sitting or lying down or any particular kind of posture? So from that standpoint, and that's certainly the way I view my practice is to not make those distinctions, which is, you know, falling into the world of, of uh, dualistic thinking, into the world of this and that. So when we're, we're practicing, we are, it's, it's a unifying practice. So we're not separating out meditation from virtue or from wisdom. They're all deeply intertwined. In fact, you can't separate them out. You know, if we then you know, reflect on it a bit further and imagine, well, what would morality be like without wisdom, without meditation? And 
it would basically be following a set of rules, a set of commandments, that this was what was handed down and this is what I need to do, the way we follow rules as children, right? <laughs> so, so we've kind of been raised to do that. So it's kind of a natural way of, of going through life. And many people never get beyond that point in terms of their practice of morality, is it's just following the rules. And hopefully every time we, we circle around to dealing with precepts, hopefully that point comes through loud and clear that that is not what this is about. But the fact that we don't treat it as rules doesn't mean we just blow it off. That it's anything goes. We take precepts very seriously, but not as rules. So that's how I would. Yeah, but but it's it's a point that uh, that uh, should should come up for folks because it really uh, it's our our way generally of seeing things. And that's why uh, a tradition like Zen can be seen as being, well, that's our focus, we just meditate. <laughs> Let's not worry about that other stuff. That's not what we're about. We're about the whole thing. Because it's all a vital piece to the practice. If, if any of it was missing, then we're, we're not really on this path. It has the various strands. And whether it's three strands or eight strands or, or ten strands or however many, it's multifaceted. Don't get fixated on you know the eightfold path as compared to the six paramitas to use a, a more uh, a, a teaching that's more associated with the Mahayana tradition whereas the eightfold path is more associated with the Theravada but you know that's neither here nor there it's it's they're both really important teachings For just that reason, that uh, we we want to kind of reduce things, and in doing so, the problem becomes that we can become blind to these other aspects that we're kind of setting aside as not being as important. It's all very important. So this path is, is, is really about uh, the openness rather than closing off. I think just as a general uh, perspective on it, that's kind of a helpful way I have found to, to approach it, is being open to all these different aspects of spiritual practice and not being on a mission to, 
to shake it out and, uh, and try to get to, to the heart of it in terms of, uh, of picking and choosing, <coughs> but rather getting to the heart of it by seeing the interdependence of the whole thing, that each piece is equally essential. Kind of like back when we had large families, maybe instead of an eightfold path, you had eight children, which is the most important one. <laughs> and that used to be easy. It's the oldest male. Right? <laughs> so we needed to have that. What's the most important one? <laughs> Let's go on to right view. And uh, have to admit, I was a bit enlightened about this from reading the paper this morning. As I uh, was reading about the, uh, the great anticipation, looking ahead to uh, Tuesday of this coming week when we start to, uh, to make available uh, for the first time the, uh, the views of the heavenly skies that we're going to, that we're already receiving from the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. Uh, talk about expanded view, <laughs> greatly expanded view. Uh, being able to see much further, to see in, in physical terms, you know, the, the, the vastness of this universe that we are part of. And you know, I've made the comment that right view can be seen as, as having two, two key aspects, no fixed view. The fixed view being when we shake it out and we have this particular view that's the right view and related to that is expanded view expansive view that's always looking for greater expansiveness this is true whether we're astronomers or just plotting our course through our lives is to be able to see things more broadly Rather than one mirror, yeah. be like James Webb and bring 18 mirrors <laughs> perfectly synced up to really take everything in and to see so deeply to the origins of the universe. It's a beautiful metaphor, I think, for, for, a, spirit, for a spiritual path. That's working with right view to my understanding. And sometimes, right, you, you'll see it uh, called right understanding. And it's generally seen as being 
kind of the, the entry point into the Eightfold Path, which is why when, when the Eightfold Path is listed, it's, it, it's always or virtually always uh, begins with right view and then right intention. And these are termed the wisdom aspects of the Eightfold Path. <clears throat> and another important piece to this that, that it's, it's helpful to keep in mind uh, is that it might seem kind of uh, ass backwards to have that in the beginning. It might seem like, well, that should come at the end. You know, well, our practice of morality and meditation is to bring it to wisdom. That's the ultimate. So in the paramitas, prajna is at the end. But the way it's done in the Eightfold Path kind of points to, to something that uh, actually it's another case of great timing, the current issue of Buddha Dharma magazine, which I know some of you get. Uh, there's an article in here uh, uh, from an old talk of, of uh, Suzuki Roshi's that's called Wisdom Seeks for Wisdom. And this is how we could see right view and right intention is coming at the beginning and also being at the end. Uh, in other words, entering the path, you know, entering the first uh, of the Oxfording pictures, there's some wisdom that brings us to the path. Wisdom seeking wisdom. Without that kind of that seed of wisdom that sees the unsatisfactoriness of my current life and moves me then to investigate how I might begin to journey on a path that would look into that matter is manifesting some wisdom. So we have that. We're not starting with a blank slate. We have wisdom, but it's seeking wisdom. And continues to seek it. until it finally realizes there's nothing to see. <laughs> and you're a Zen master. <laughs> you, you give up seeking. But this is how I, I think we can see right view and right intention as being at the beginning and at the end. And that also then helps to, uh, to overcome any, any uh, propensity we might have to kind of see them in sequence and in steps that we follow. Because yeah, they're not. They're not. <laughs>
just because we start with right dealing, right intention, uh, doesn't mean that we'll worry about virtuous action and meditation way. The whole thing is involved right from the get-go. And these are just different ways of viewing that cable, the different strands that give it integrity and strength. And we can experience that integrity and strength through our practice. That's part of that verification that comes from, from the practice, that we get to see it. Not just accept it because the Buddha taught it or Bodhidharma or Kogan. So, uh, and just to, to touch on the connectedness of, of right view and wisdom more generally speaking to the other aspects, uh, look at something like concentration, which comes towards the end of the traditional listing of the Eightfold Path. But yet concentration brings the calmness and the collectiveness that allows us to deepen our wisdom and to develop. So without concentration, we're hindered in the ability to, to nurture wisdom. They're interdependent. And also in terms of uh, virtuous action, working with the defilements and how they knock us off course. How can we uh, develop our wisdom or our concentration if we were not settled in terms of our virtuous action? If we continue to chase after our desires in a self-centered way, lacking in wisdom, where self is at the center of the universe. So virtuous action, ascension. Meditation, ascension. Working hand in hand, working together. So, coming back to Bhikkhu Bodhi again, uh, 
you know, he, he describes right view as providing the perspective for practice and right intention, uh, kind of the sense of direction. And of course, the fact that they do not expire, come to an end once they've served this preparatory role, that they are ever present from the beginning to the middle to the end and back to the beginning at every step. They're ever present. And view, right view. Another thing I wanted to uh, to talk about in this regard uh, here this morning because it's it's so topical, I think, for us uh, in terms of its connection to truth, reality as it is, the way things really are. And the fact that as a society, you know, we're finding the truth is uh, very much under attack. It's kind of uh, simply something that's used for very limited purposes to accomplish an end. That's the reality that matters. Not reality as it is, but the reality as I wish it to be. So if it relates to political power, even if, if uh, there has been no uh, fraud worth even spending a moment's notice with, uh, to say that it is this great burning issue is serving a purpose, even though it's a lie. It's not reality as it is. And so many of the other things that get propagated through media, social media and other forms of media are, are cut from the same cloth. So a practice to my mind at this time and place that pays such importance to right view is very well suited to our time. And there are a lot of spiritual people, not just limited to Buddhists, who see this as one of the most critical things that we've, we're faced with. Is this utter disregard for truth and to bend it to suit one's own purposes? So the truth of, of uh, environmental degradation, global warming, the data is there. 
the truth of increasing inequality. The data is there. And to take a more expansive view, what are the ramifications? What are the causes? And how does it continue to, to reinforce itself? And what would it take to stop it? Sounds kind of like our practice. To be aware of the defilements. What are their causes? That's the road to liberation from them. Beginning with right view. You take right view from the mix. And the whole thing, the whole enterprise falls, falls down. So this for me, now, just kind of points to the importance, the relevance of this path. And the, the, this is, then becomes a good place, we touched on this Thursday, about the meaning of right. When we talk about right view, that right is the sense of expansiveness, no sense, but rather seeing the entirety and all the interrelationships. This is wisdom. This is what we would expect of wise leaders rather than leaders who, are, who have a position that they're trying to advocate for. That is not wisdom. Wisdom requires openness and seeing as big of a picture as we can open our minds to. To see reality as it is. With the humility that we recognize that we're always going to be limited in. But that doesn't mean that we don't still investigate with this guidance of the practice of right view. The same things in their entirety, insofar as we have that capability <clears throat> to the best of our ability. And that's a, that we consider it to be very important to do so. And that we see taking the more limited view and becoming adamant about that is to be, as we the, the phrase in Buddhism goes, is to be stained with defilement. The defilement is... The, the poison of our desire or hatred. And the staining is because of the dukkha that it generates. 
his wrong views, unwholesome views, to put it more appropriately, more limited views, cause suffering, do So right view then, we can now see as encompassing all of Dharma, all the teachers. Not just any particular teacher, but the entirety. And that's why in the Theravadan tradition, often right view is seen as being an understanding of the Four Noble Truths, which of course includes the Eightfold Path. So, at this point then, I, I, continuing on with, with uh, right view, I want to move on to uh, another text that I've been looking at as we go through the Four Noble Truths, uh, take kind of a, uh, an approach that's, that's more rooted in the Zen tradition. Uh, Buddhism Plain and Simple was a text by Steve Hagen, who was a Dharma heir of Katagiri Roshi. So I, I'd like to share a few observations uh, of Steve Hagen's uh, on this subject of, of right view. And uh, he, he begins by making, uh, really emphasizing the way he interprets the term right, which is derived from the original Sanskrit term of Sama, S-A-M-M-A. -A. And as he says, Sama does not mean right as opposed to wrong. Or, or bad, or evil, getting caught up in these dualities. Because dualism is kind of this psychological backdrop that we, we find ourselves in, in our everyday lives. It's what leads us to to chase after some things and push away other things by seeing things in this limited view way. So this is a, an instance of going beyond, going beyond the dualistic way of seeing things and actually seeing things in their wholeness. So right view then can become wholesome view in the sense of, of dealing with the whole. It's what makes it wholesome or appropriate view. It becomes appropriate because we're looking at it in its myriad aspects, not just from a limited view where it becomes appropriate for me from uh, a limited uh, set of, of intentions, 
with reference to. But to actually be in line with the way things are is to see it in its entirety. As it, in recognizing that there are many ways, given our limited views based on our limitations, there are many ways to perceive something. So right view, wholesome view, needs to take that basic fact into account. Recognizing we can never get our head wrapped around all the different ways, but we don't have to. We just need to, to, to be able to stand in someone else's shoes to see one other person's viewpoint can create a huge opening for us. We don't need hundreds of different views. Actually, one other view could, could work wonders in that together. And then we can be in touch with reality as it really is, and as it interacts with each of us. And we can begin to communicate with others coming from that basic understanding. And that's what allows real communication to take place. Otherwise, it's just advocacy, which tends to deteriorate into dismissal. <laughs> I'm going to advocate for my view. And if I can't win you over, I become dismissive. So right view is kind of pointing to a different way. way that, that uh, hopefully you can see just from what we've said so far and, and how it applies within your own life, you can see how it would be descriptive of, of a term that we would use like wisdom. Actually being able <coughs> to, to, to respond to things in an appropriate way. It's to manifest wisdom a deeper understanding as opposed to just self-serving time after time after time, which unfortunately is what happens all too often. That's the world of fragmentation, everybody self-serving. Back to the Sanskrit term sama is the world of, of things working in harmony, into, in interdependence, in their wholeness.
to recognize that holding on to any particular view, this sense of a fixed view, is our attempt to, to freeze reality. Reality, keep in mind, is, is, is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a thing. This is the truth of emptiness, the nothingness of all things, the no things. It's all an activity. We can't freeze it. That's not its nature. Key component of project to have that understanding. It's true for me, it's true for you, and it's true for everything we encounter. Can't be frozen. You're not a thing. So not to be caught by a particular view just to become a partisan, <laughs> a particular view. Not being caught by ideas, concepts, beliefs, or opinions. Not being caught by them. We can have them. Not to be caught by them. See them for what they are. When we're not caught or hooked by them, then they, they're far less apt to become defilements for us. They're just our way of relating to something. But <coughs> is to always go beyond, to be able to see things in a slightly different way, or maybe a vastly different. Right view in its all-inclusive nature that leaves nothing out. So it always has to remain open. So that's much what I wanted to go over in connection with uh, right view. So once again, I'm going to hit the pause button and see what your response might Jeff? Um, my wheels are turning about, about how all the teachings fall into place in societies, um, as far as right view, for instance, in in the Western world, we've got this very dualistic subject-object way of looking at everything. And as you put it, it keeps us a, as the center of our own universe. Everything is out there, separate from us. And and um, as such, we develop this very egocentric way of looking at everything. Yeah. And then if I were raised on the other side of the ocean, somewhere in Asia, where you grew up knowing the greater community is the greatest thing, is first. 
and within that community is your maybe your family, and then somewhere in that family is you. So you don't grow up thinking you're the center, but then it's like everything is the meaningful, and you're part of that. Right. And then how these teachings can, you know, Buddhist teachings catch on easier when your mindset is that way in the first place. Yeah. 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 So your right view is an easier thing to grasp. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, to be able to practice right view, uh, it, it's easier for us as, as Westerners, maybe in some sense, to see uh, what they have to offer us. And since Buddhism comes from that side of the globe, that uh, maybe what we have to offer isn't so much. But you know, it's not that the individual isn't important as well. So that is kind of, and, and here, you know, in terms of uh, things like uh, uh, democracy, uh, we can help share that with, with, uh, with the uh, Eastern world and bring the sense of wholeness that they already have together with the, the role of the individual which can also has a tendency then to get very diminished, to be able to hold them both up. So we definitely, I think, need to have more of a sense of wholeness. But I would also uh, suggest that they, they could benefit quite a bit from having a greater sense of the individual, but not at the expense of the sense of wholeness, to have those actually merge together, like in sandal kind <laughs> Beautiful Dharma teaching, the merging of difference in unity. The individual is the manifestation of, of the wholeness. And, and don't treat it, uh, treat it with, with its, the sacredness that it carries with it. It's its very nature. It's the nature of all things. So I think we could use right view as a way of, of going beyond both East and West and saying, no, we need to, to bring that whole thing together. So it's a great way, I think, to put this into practice that way. And to see how we get caught up by one side or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of leaning this way. <laughs> And to use that great phrase of Reb Anderson of being upright and not leaning towards either the individual or the wholeness, but rather <coughs> being right in the middle of it. And the teaching of the Heart Sutra about the you know, fact that uh, it's, everything is empty. And emptiness, uh, the, the absolute unity of all things, is dependent upon all of the individuals that make it up. Without us, no emptiness, nothing sacred. The middle way. Yeah, that's the middle way yeah. uh, from the Mahayana standpoint. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doug. I'm, yeah. 
Um, when you're talking about wisdom being open, um, it, it strikes me that um, a part of wisdom then is, is vulnerability. Mm. And because when we're open, we are, if we are open, then we are going to be allowing everything or things to come in. And I don't know, can you maybe talk somewhat about vulnerability as a part of wisdom? Yeah, boy, that's, that's a wonderful observation. Uh, could, could, could carry uh, a whole Dharma talk or two or three. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you're exactly right that in order to be able to be open is it's kind of and we have the metaphor about opening oneself up <laughs> opening of the heart means that well you're exposing it <laughs> as opposed to our defensive mechanism we close ourselves off when we get into our homes and lock the doors <laughs> You know, now we're, we're feeling pretty safe. But when we come out and we open ourselves up, uh, there's, there's a great vulnerability there. So one of the teachings in the Dharma that we're always, another one that we're constantly coming back to is this trust in self. This kind of like self-confidence that we carry with us. And, and here I'd like to relate it to this sense of emptiness, this sense of no fixed self. We've been talking about no fixed view. There's no fixed self. And to the extent we come to see that, then that in and of itself kind of reduces the, the level of threat that we're prone to, to experience. because. I, I now see that, well, what is it that's being threatened? What is it that's going to be harmed? It's an idea. It's my idea of the harm. I have a perception of it. But I could also, if I open myself up to seeing it more broadly, I could see that, well, actually, if I could become much stronger if I, by opening myself up. So the, the whole notion then of, of, uh, of being protected from harm kind of comes full circle. We go through the sense of no self and opening up our perspective to the fact that, well, actually from this place of no self and seeing things more broadly, I become stronger. Um, because I'm not threatened. And it's not some kind of haughty uh, you know, just sense of it. It's just the reality of the different way we experience things. And now you know, that, that transformation has really kicked in where I'm not going to be so prone to feel threatened. And then... Um, able to open up. So opening up kind of helps uh, working hand in hand with wisdom, with right view, right intention, uh, having a, a clearer view of the true nature of reality uh, 
it just comes around and open and helps us to open up more and more and more. So there is kind of this self-reinforcing aspect of practice that, that I, I see. And I think that's that's where it's it becomes a matter of practice, the actual doing of it. And then to experience it, to see that that is in fact how it generally unfolds. And it kind of makes sense, you know, if you, <laughs> if you describe it, somebody looks at it conceptually, it's not like they go, well, that's crazy. Actually, it seems to make sense to me. <laughs> I consider myself to be a fairly sensible guy <laughs> who has a pretty good nose for BS. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to be shoveling the BS to anybody. <laughs> so you were saying, if I understood you, that when we are threatened, then um, let's say we open ourselves up and then we see, discover, we feel threatened, you know, the defenses may want to come up. Did you said that that's because we were hanging on to a concept, an idea, a belief that we're not willing to open up to other possibilities? I don't, I'm not sure if I get that. And this is part of the, the practices, the Satipatthana, the practice mindfulness around our perceptions of things to see how they impact us and how we respond to things. So a threat that I perceive is a perception. It's, we turn it into something real. We've frozen it. That is a threat. <laughs> but the threat is always about uh, something that's in the future. And it's always about me as whatever my sense of self is. Uh, you know, there are real threats in terms of like if I, I looked down and there was a, a rattlesnake all of a sudden in front of me, not, not a, a rope, <laughs> to use the Buddhist metaphor, which also is a good teaching of, of perception. <laughs> and this one isn't a rope. <laughs> You know, a rope doesn't have a rattle to it. <laughs> a rope doesn't have a fourth tongue. So I've, I've verified this is not a rope. <laughs> then I, I would feel threatened then. And that's different. So I, I don't want to just completely uh, go off the tracks with this. But the reality is most of the times we feel threatened. It's, it, we're not talking about these primal threats. We're talking about our thoughts, being caught up in our thoughts and how they turn into our reality. That's the threat world that I'm, I'm really talking about. Would that be a threat to, um, I, I'm, I've seen this, I've seen capital S self, I've seen small s self uh, printed in, in text. This, so would that be a, a threat to the small self, the uh, ego self, I guess, if, if that's the right way of saying it. Exactly, because the ego self is a fabricated self. That is conceptual, perceptual. 
we have to build that up. And that because of that, we have to continue to maintain it. And we don't want it to be to be impacted. We want to protect it, defend it, and, and that's our security, is my sense of who I am. And we have we build that up, and if somebody uh, uh, kind of attacks that just with a statement, it can really throw us for a loop. So it is, in effect, a threat to our comfort being challenged, I suppose, without thinking it that way. But it is a challenge to our, our sense of comfort, that, that structure that I built around myself that I call myself. Uh, is all of a sudden under a threat of attack, or it somehow I've, it, 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 it's in, almost engaging me to leave that comfortable place and examine it, I guess, and maybe that's part of the opening up. Um, maybe that's part of becoming vulnerable or allowing vulnerability. I, I think so. And to, to see that, that this opening up is, is always an appropriate way to respond to those things is because our our tendency is to close down. And that's what we need to, to see happening through the practice of mindfulness and be able to stop that reaction and to, to have right intention and right view to bring some wisdom to it and to be able to actually open up around it. You know, I, I can remember now that we're having this discussion uh, at a session uh, out at Jacoji, uh, and we, we broke into smaller groups for this thing. I think there was some role playing and stuff. Uh, and there were like four people, I think, in our group. And this one young guy uh, was attributing, you know, some kind of, of weird motivations to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, it, was, it was a wonderful moment of practice to be able to, to not follow that tendency to become de defensive, but rather to actually open up and kind of draw him out more. Well, you know, what, what's leading to that? Uh, you know, why, why do you say that? That's interesting. <laughs> and to kind of go down that path. And then another person in the group jumped in and was going to become my defender. <laughs> but I think that kind of a scenario is a, is a good example, though, of how that approach can actually help to, to make it a more wholesome exchange for everybody involved, not to respond in that way, and rather to, to just kind of be open to it. And let's, let's look at that. And yeah, as you would expect, once that happens, the, the whole energy to it starts to, you know, it's like pop, uh, opening up uh, the balloon and the air starts coming. I read in Joko Beck this thing about, and Barry Magid too, a book that he had written, um, 
ending the pursuit of happiness. About uh, Zazen was a, a way in which to create a bigger container. And I just wonder if that's kind of apply, high, uh, plays into this or applies to this, that the bigger container gives us the space um, not to react so quickly to a threat, let's say. A threat that's really not a threat, but that perception of a threat. And that space to maybe examine something. Is that some idea of that larger container? Yes, yes. Okay. That's the, I'm so uh, uh, grateful that you, you bring that in because that is where, where Zazen, that's why Dogen was saying it's, that's different from meditation practice. It it's really involves everything, wisdom, virtue, and, uh, and meditation. It's, it's just the practice. The practice can be seen as Zazen, and that means creating the bigger uh, container. And if we can do that in all of our interactions, that's living the practice. Rather than just having an idea about it, because those are just perceptions. You know, we've got to actually implement Yeah, yeah, definitely. Zazen, opening themselves, vulnerability, but true vulnerability, enhancing that confidence, that, that sense of, of safety. As the capital F self, uh, is is never far from our experience of things. It's always there. And we we stay in touch with it pretty regularly. And see it in others too. And we therefore become more willing to kind of try to draw that out too. Rather than just <laughs> narrow down, he's being a real asshole. What the hell's wrong? <laughs> now the truth comes out. Then we become dismissive. All right. Well, and we're we're in no hurry. So if there's anything else, because uh, I want I'm I'm not inclined to get into right intention. It's not that much. Uh, it's a shorter topic than uh, than right view. So we I, I I think next time we can just start with right intention and then from there launch into the uh, the virtuous. Pieces to, to the eightfold path. Oh. Yeah, just to, I guess, share a little bit or talking around the vulnerability and vulnerability of self. Um, you know, I think some ways just, you know, that relate to my own practice. Like waking up in the morning and getting on my cushion feels extremely vulnerable. Like my mind is quickly running in the morning with its concept of reality. And I sit on the cushion and then it's, all of a sudden those concepts become a lot more fluid and you know what's actually really happening compared to what's in my head about the day or people or 
right? It starts starts coming forward, and that that feels extremely vulnerable in and of itself. And um, and then I was thinking as well, just you know, around this the idea of you know listening or listening to other you know people's points of view. So as you mentioned, somebody else's view, just one person's view. And how, you know, you talked about slice cream and the one Dharma talk and just the act of listening, you know, allowing somebody else's view to come into your space and to soften your own view and, and, and how vulnerable that, that really is. Because, you know, maybe your view isn't the most important view, you know, maybe somebody else's view could be more important than your own. And, you know, even to this concept of self, like, what's a world look like where I'm not the most important being? in the world, maybe Doug's the most important or maybe Steve's the most important. Um, and that's just very threatening. I mean, that's, you know, trying to kind of be in that space of kind of, oh, you know, not holding on so tightly is all of it seems like very vulnerable. <laughs> so the vulnerability seemed very much at the heart of like the entire practice. It's just so vulnerable and pain, but painful at times that you want to like for me, like I want to get up off the cushion at times because it's just, it can be painful at times. But that's also a sign that uh, how deep you're going with it. So to kind of lift you up. <laughs> As opposed to just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, you, uh, you know, as Doug pointed out so nicely, you know, it is the practices uh, about making ourselves vulnerable and opening ourselves up. Because there can be a tendency to just kind of go through the motions. Because who's going to know? <laughs> You show up regularly. You have good, strong sitting practice. Hey, he's doing great. But yeah, when when you're actually uh, when it's it's hitting you that way, now you're you're really uh, take taking it on wholeheartedly. And. And that's where to be able to, to be supported with, within a Sangha, with a teacher, with the Dharma, with the teachings, uh, and, and just to, to be able to have that uh, strength to, to keep coming back to it. Because it's counterintuitive to us. I mean, our society is built around them. Well, you want to avoid all that. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Because we kind of, again, we're back to this wisdom seeking wisdom. We have that preliminary wisdom that, well, but that's what's what's happening. And I and I do need to face that. I need to be open to that. If I run and hide from it, I'm just repressing it, and it's still there. You know, I've come this far on this path. I've started doing this, and and uh, <coughs> and I'm, I'm not liking what it's opening up. 
So it would be all too easy then just to, to pack it in. And that's what often happens. So it, it is uh, not, it's not a practice for, for somebody who just wants to uh, kind of have, have it all be peace, love, and joy. <laughs> that's, that's not it. And, and that's, kind of, we'll, we'll at least get this far into right intention. That's part of the role of right intention, is if it was all about, you know, peace, love, and joy, uh, we wouldn't have to worry about right intention, because it would always, it would be serving our purposes. We feel it would be the feel-good practice. Yeah, who's not going to sign up for that? I don't need right intention. <laughs> but we do need right intention. But it needs to resonate with that early stage wisdom so that we're not just kind of uh, doing it again because, well, all these other people have practiced Buddhism and it seems to have uh, uh, worked for them. Uh, but we need to actually have that sense for ourselves. And we can get that sense even without being fully enlightened beings because of that inner prajna that we, we bring to it right out of the gate. We have to keep practicing with it and developing it and honoring it because it comes forth within us. We do come to, to practice with it. So as it continues to, to manifest, to, to have gratitude for that. So that's kind of part of our uh, dedication of merit to all the teachers and the ancestors and the tradition, <coughs> ultimately to all beings. Is you know, thanking them for for supporting me in, in this endeavor, which isn't always easy. Times of joy and peace. There are times when we feel pretty vulnerable and raw. But the way they kind of come together and intertwine you know, we can actually come to see the rawness as being part, part of the gift that we start to realize, but yet I'm feeling <clears throat> more deeply alive, that that's part of, part of uh, what's going on with me right now. And I need to let that come forth. I need to be okay and take care of. So it's that old saw about loving kindness begins with ourselves. Otherwise, it can't radiate out. So that becomes an important practice at that stage. Is, you know, we can 
think, well, that's self-centered, but no, it's not about self or other exclusively. It's about everything. And that happens to, to be able to take care of yourself. So yeah, I'm so glad that we've gotten into this topic of, of opening and vulnerabilities because it really big, big part of the journey if we're talking about the Oxford pictures. They're not going to get into that nitty-gritty piece to it. But it's there. It's there. So thanks for making sure we keep it there. It's important. I guess final you know, comment on that is you know, it seems like when we talk about you know like a bodhisattva that kind of isn't in the practice just to feel good about, you know themselves physically or mentally or spiritually but they're going to stay right and help you know other beings in that kind of you know pursuit and so being able to kind of stay in that kind of you know suffering space and then I guess take refuge in you know Buddha or Dharma and, and the Sangha and how important that is I guess that's is that the point of like recharging is taking refuge in those kind of three elements so like how important this the sangha feels like it's a great place right where you can kind of know that others are kind of on the path with you and you know you're kind of going through it together and then the dharma teaching that you bring right gives us a glimpse you know into something that's a little bit bigger or more expansive so oh yeah oh yeah and and to to just continue to, to feel that support in so many different places. To realize uh, that, that, yeah, there's definitely what we kind of view as, as dark Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But then when we take that more expansive view and it, it spreads out, uh, you know, the fact that uh, kind of relating it to Dharma gates are boundless. So, so is Buddha and Sangha. They're, they're boundless. And we encounter them constantly. And to draw strength from them, which can require that we, we recognize them as Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and feel supported by them. Because we could be receiving the support, but if we don't, perceive it as such, we don't receive it as such, then we don't get the, the nourishment from it. So that's where our, our uh, way of, of relating to it can, can, just with a little shift, we can all of a sudden open ourselves, uh, not just to the vulnerability, but to the, the, uh, the strengthening that comes with it.
because it's pretty much always there. I think we're ready to chant out. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you to one and all.